change of mind from I am righteous on my own to I am only righteous in Christ. Once you recognize that truth and come to that change of mind, that is repentance, God takes it from there. And then God says, as long as you change your mind and know that you need me, I will take you. And then God will take you where he needs you and wants you to be. You don't meet Christ and then run ahead and get yourself the rest of the way. You meet Christ and in his power and his strength, with his direction and under his correction, God takes you the rest of the way. And the rest of the way is what we call the Christian life. You meet Christ at the cross. You are saved in that moment. And then he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will take you the rest of the way. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The title of my, this morning's message is Chosen. Now, this is not going to be a summary of the TV show, The Chosen. This title just happens to mirror that well-known television series, The Chosen. When you think of The Chosen at this point, obviously we think of the 12 apostles who were chosen from amongst the 100 plus disciples who were chosen from amongst the millions of citizens of this earth. God chooses us to positions of service. God chooses us to a calling that is unique to our life. But did you know that God also chooses us to the gospel? You say, well, Pastor Russ, you have said multiple times you're not a Reformed theologian, you're not a Calvinist. Calvinism, Reformed theology, is the belief that God chooses some to the gospel while others are not chosen and end up in hell for eternity. I didn't say God chose some. I said God chose you. God chose all. I believe very strongly from Scripture that God chooses all to salvation. Now, there are different words for this idea of chosen in the Bible. The original Greek words I'm not going to get into, but there's different original Greek words. The one you're going to find in this text is different from the others that are mentioned throughout the New Testament. There is one passage of Scripture where God gives a parable, and in that parable he says that many are called, but few are chosen. You say, well, that, that right there uh, denies the statement you make that God chooses all. I've said many times that God calls all, and God only chooses those who accept him. But that phrase, many are called, few are chosen, that word chosen is not the same word that's used in this text for chosen. This word chosen has the idea of God accepts, God embraces, God partners with. God partners with and accepts those who've accepted him. God chooses all. God calls all to that acceptance. You have to make the decision of acceptance or rejection of the calling God made on your life for him to return and accept you in that choosing to position of salvation. Chosen. You are chosen. Not because you are special, but because God is merciful. Because no one is special enough to be chosen from hell from your own goodness. God chooses you because God is good. 
Verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and the belief of the truth. When verse 13 is preached in many scripture, messages, pastors opening the Bible, looking at this verse. Again, they're using verse 13 to preach some form of Reformed theology and to say that from the beginning God chose you. From the beginning God decided you were worthy of salvation or you were one of the few elect. Except verse 13, as I said, that word chosen is not the same word for elect or chosen in other passages of scripture. So right away, it's not a great text for Reformed theology, even just looking at it from the point of the word chosen. But above and beyond that. Verse 13 is not talking to an individual person or necessarily an actual church. He's talking to the Gentile church. He's talking to the church in Thessalonica as representatives of all Gentile churches. And the Apostle Paul says, from the beginning, God chose the Gentiles to join us in the gospel. That is what verse 13 is saying. That from the beginning it was God's intent that all would have access to the gospel. That all would be chosen and given access to that gospel, specifically the Gentiles. And why would that be such a big deal? Because the Jews did not believe that. The Jews thought they were special, they were unique, and only Jews got to be saved. The Jews thought if you were going to get saved, you had to get saved by becoming a Jew first. And if you believed yourself to be saved while not being a Jew, the Jews said, not possible. You cannot be saved if you are not a Jew. The Apostle Paul breaks down that false belief in one verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And he says, from the beginning, it was God's intention for Gentile churches to join the nation of Israel to the Messiah. From the beginning, God chose the nations outside of Israel to benefit from the grace that he offers in his son, Jesus Christ. It was not something that God did through life. He changed his mind. He said, you know what? I'm going to offer it anyways. I wasn't going to, but now I am. Gentiles, you had no chance, but I feel really bad about that. So now I'm going to give you a chance. For the first thousands of years of human history, you couldn't be saved, but now you can. No, all along, the Gentiles could be saved. Then why didn't we see Gentiles getting saved? By massive amounts of numbers. You know why? Because the Jews didn't seek the Gentiles. The Jews didn't believe the Gentiles could be saved or should be saved. The Jews thought the Gentiles were lesser people. They actually gave them names like the heathen and, and other names that were tagged that kind of put them on a lower level of humanity. God gave the nation of Israel to the world to represent himself in the Old Testament. And the nation of Israel secluded themselves and they said, you can't come here unless you're a Jew. We are most definitely not going to you. And throughout much of human history, you see Gentile nation after Gentile nation falling into sin, deprivation, wickedness, because the people of God did not reach them. Because the people of God did not think they were worth being reached. And then God gave the world the church. And he said, let's try this again. <laughs> the nation of Israel failed. In so many ways. I am not belittling them. They were human. We are human. God loves the nation of Israel and will restore them to himself in the future. But they failed. 
they fail to reach the world. They fail to represent Christ. They fail to follow and serve Christ consistently. And when Christ arrived, they failed to see him. Oh, boy, did they fail. And you said, oh, that nation of Israel, sir, I'm glad I wasn't one of them, except the church has, has failed so much as well. God says, try again. Now, church, you are going to represent me. Now, church, you are going to reach the lost. Now, church, you are going to show the world the gospel. Tell the world the gospel. And what do we do? The same thing as the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We seclude ourselves. And you cannot come here unless you are the church first, except how does that work? How do you be the church and go to church before you are the church? The church must go out and reach the Gentiles, which we are Gentiles. We must reach the lost knowing they can be reached. They should be reached. That is God's heart to reach them and bring them to the gospel. Because from the beginning, that was God's choice. From the beginning, that was God's heart. That all the world would be reached. Because all the world, from the beginning, was chosen to be given the chance of the gospel. Second Thessalonians 2.13 is not a verse for Reformed theology or Calvinism. Second Thessalonians 2.13 is a verse that opens up our hearts and eyes to the heart of God. From the beginning, all people should have had access to the gospel. Verse 14. Whereunto he called you by our gospel, the gospel we brought to you, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. And again, we come to a verse that has often been mistaught and mispreached. Hold the line, brother. Don't break traditions. What traditions? The traditions your fathers gave you and your grandfathers gave you. Which traditions do you speak? Well, the traditions of what versions of the Bible you should or should not use. I use the King James for a good reason. You want to know, you ask me. But a lot of churches make that a much bigger deal than it should be. What traditions? The traditions of what a pastor ought to wear from the pulpit as preaching, for what a church member ought to wear from the seats. Don't break those traditions, brother. What traditions? The traditions of how worship music ought to sound and the instruments that should and should not be used. Don't break the traditions, brother. What traditions? The traditions of not going to the movie theater. The traditions of not eating at a restaurant where there might be people of ill repute also eating in the same restaurant. What traditions? The traditions of what you do to your hair and your body. What traditions? And the list goes on and on and on. How dare you not shave, men. How dare you ladies wear something other than dresses. I had to clarify. I know. I, context. Context is key, right? <laughs> How dare you break the traditions? Except that's not what this verse is saying. Did you know that anything can and has been taught using the Bible? Oh, sure. You know the Bible well enough? That, with, with thousands and tens of thousands of verses available, You can take any part of any verse and preach whatever you want and make it sound legitimate. Look at the entire text. Look at the entire chapter, the entire book, and the entire word, and you will find most of what is taught in many churches isn't scriptural. Just because they use scripture doesn't make it scriptural. This verse is not saying, do always the same thing that was done 30 years ago by the church back in the 80s or 90s. 
It is not saying look the same ways they did back in the 50s. It is not saying sing the same ways they did back in the 40s. That is not what this verse is saying. This word traditions is referring to teachings. You say, well, that is tradition, what we were taught. Except the Apostle Paul clarifies here what teachings? The teachings of the gospel. The teaching of the epistles in verse 15. The teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not abandon the traditions that are discovered in the truth of the gospel. Not the traditions of philosophy that changes from generation to generation. That must change. Because if we do not change with time, we cannot reach those who have. I am not saying to look like the world. I'm not saying to abandon truth. I'm saying with truth looking like Christ, we cannot live like we are in the 1700s. We cannot live like we're in the 1970s. We cannot live like we're in 2010. We're not. We must live like we are in 2023. Standing on truth, not abandoning the traditions of the gospel of Christ and of truth, and reaching the lost, which God from the beginning offers to the world. Verse 15, hold fast the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Where will you find that solid foundation in Christ? Where will you find that soul comfort in Christ? Where will you find that never-changing truth in Christ? It is all found in Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, you can stand firm in Christ. The chosen, from the beginning, you were chosen. As all were chosen, from the beginning, to the gospel. But not just to the gospel. God chose you to take the gospel to the other chosen, to the world. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. I see two main points this morning. Only two instead of three. I do that occasionally, and today's one of them. All right, praise the Lord. Some of you are like, I'm already going to start ordering lunch now. Two main points. Step up and stand fast. Step up and stand fast. Verses 13 and 14, we see step up, letter A. God's call to grace began in love. Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Love. God called you to grace for one reason only. It was not to populate heaven. There's a song that claims you didn't want heaven without us. We've actually sung that song, minus that verse. Because I love that song. I just don't like that verse. Because I don't see that verse in Scripture. God doesn't need us in heaven. God doesn't need to look across the crowds of people and say, I sure am awesome. Look at all those people. No, that's man's heart, not God's heart. That's man's pride, not God. God doesn't have pride. Not in that way. God is a proud God. God does not have the sin of pride. God doesn't need crowds of people to feel good about himself. 
God loved you. The end. Period. That's it. Why did God offer Christ? Love. Why did Christ show up? Love. Why did Christ live a very meek and humble life of really being unknown through most of it? And then when he was known, hated through the rest. Love. Christ could have chosen a nonviolent death. Why did Christ choose a violent death? Love. Well, what, in what way does a violent death show love? Many Christians have before Christ, and many Christians have since Christ died violent deaths. And Christ said, if I'm going to ask that of my followers, I'm going to do it myself. Christ is not the kind of God or the kind of leader that would ever ask something of you that he himself was not willing to experience. Christ didn't need to die a violent death, but Christ wanted to show you he was with you, even in violence. Love. Why did Christ conquer death? Love. Why did Christ raise from the dead? Love. Why did Christ ascend to heaven, preparing a kingdom of heaven for us in heaven, preparing mansions in heaven? Love. Why will Christ return? Love. Why will Christ dwell on this earth for a thousand years, reigning with us under his authority? Love. Why will Christ, at the end of that thousand years, create a new heaven and a new earth? Love. Why will Christ dwell with us for eternity? Love. And now let's back up. Why did Christ offer it to the entire world? Love. If you don't have love, do you even have Christ? I'm not asking if you're saved. I'm asking if you're connected. Do you even abide in Christ if you don't have love? John certainly did not think so. John stated, the Apostle John stated, if you don't love, in my opinion, you're not with Christ. He wasn't saying you're going to hell. He's saying you are not dwelling with him at this point in your life. You are not connected to him. You are not abiding with him because Christ is love. And to be with Christ is to be love. Now, a lot of Christians are so good at that, they lose sight of the other side. That is just as important because Christ is love, is he not? Of course he is. We're going to find, though, later in Scripture, later in this text, Christ also elevates truth. We'll talk about that in a little bit. To be all love and no truth is to not represent Christ. To be all truth and no love is to not represent Christ. The best and purest representation of Christ is to be all love and all truth, both. Not 50-50, all in love and all in truth. It's like a marriage. A good marriage is not half and half. A good marriage is not 50%, 50%. A good marriage is 100%, 100%. The husband is 100% all in. The wife is 100% all in. That's a healthy, successful, thriving marriage. You need to be 100% all in love. And you need to be 100% all in truth. And when you are that, you represent Christ well. Letter B. God's call to grace continues to all. I've already spoken much on that in my introduction, that this word chosen in verse 13 is not referring to a, a select few that God calls to heaven and the rest are banished to hell. This word chosen is referring to the fact that God wants to accept you and embrace you in the gospel. And from the beginning, that offer was to all Gentile nations. You wouldn't know it by looking at the nation of Israel, but if you read the heart of God in scripture, you'd see it. I wonder, does the world know it now? Does the world know that the offer is to them? Does the world see the heart of God? No, but they need to read the Bible. They're not going to read the Bible. Most are not going to read the Bible. They're going to read you. 
So when they read God and the Bible through you, will they know it? Will they know that God has chosen to accept them in the gospel? Or when they read your life, do they get the impression God doesn't want them? Because if your life tells them God doesn't want them, are you even abiding in Christ? Are you even connected to Christ? Because those connected to Christ, those abiding in Christ, will reflect the heart of Christ, and God chose all from the beginning. Not the ones you like. Not the ones you look like. Not the ones you act like. Not the ones you vote like. God chose all. Even the ones you don't like. God chose all. All from the beginning. God offered this chance. Does the world see that when they see you? Letter C. God's call to grace ends in glory. Oh, man. (laughs) This is what you needed to hear today. The first two, good reminder. Yes, Meriden Hills already knows these truths, the first two. We've applied these truths. We live these truths. You come in today. The end of April, going into May, this is what you came in for right here. This is what you needed to hear. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you on today. This is how he wants to encourage you. He says, step up, church. Step up and reach the lost that God has called. We know that. We volunteer. Step up. God has chosen them from the beginning. We know that. We volunteer. Step up. God offers you glory. Sure doesn't feel like it, God. I don't feel the glory. I feel the pain. I feel the rejection. I feel the loneliness. I feel lost. I feel like I'm ready to give up. I definitely don't feel the glory. I don't feel the glory of everyone looking to you and saying, well done. You did it. I don't feel that. I feel like everyone's pointing a finger and saying, what have you done? You did it. How dare you? I feel the judgment. I don't feel the glory. I feel the pull down. I don't feel the lift up. I feel the hide in the shadows, not the stand in the light. I know there is glory in heaven, but I don't think there's glory this side of heaven. I know someday, someday I'll bask in the glory of my Savior Jesus Christ for eternity but I've come to accept I'll never know that until I'm dead. You've been told a lie. You've embraced a lie. You are living a lie. There is glory now. Today. This morning. This week. Yes. At the end of a school year, there is glory in Christ. Yes, when you do not think you can go further, there is glory in Christ. God does not just offer you glory then. He provides it now. You say, then why don't I feel it? Because while the team is jumping up and down, we won number one, number one. You're sitting on the bleachers saying, I'm not part of the team. While the church is singing and praising God's name, glory to God, and we're part of it, you're just making noise from your seat. While the Holy Spirit moves among his people and offers encouragement and comfort, you 
quench the spirit, Ephesians tells us, and refuse what he offers. Step up to the glory God offers you now. Not that you might be glorified, but that you might enjoy the glory he has. And when you're with him, you get to benefit from his glory. I have been asked in the past, when I was a youth pastor, if you could eat lunch with any movie star or musician, who would you choose? And I'd say, honestly, none. I can't think of one I'd want to eat a meal with. I, I just don't know them. That, from what I do know them, I don't think I want to spend time with them. I'm not saying I don't enjoy their movies. I'm not saying that maybe aren't good ones out there. I just have no desire to like spend hours with one of them. But I know for most people, that would be one of the highlights of their life. Not me. I'm not saying you're wrong or bad for feeling differently. I'm just stating a fact. For most people, being in the presence of someone known worldwide brings them glory. When the paparazzi comes and takes pictures, everyone's asking, who's that person next to the movie star? Who's that person next to the singer? They try to do their research. Who is this person? Are they dating? Are they friends? Are they related? Who is this woman? Who is this man? And for a moment, at least a moment, the world's eyes are on you. And you smile and say, yeah. You want to know about me? I'll sell you my story. For a moment, you are in the light of glory because you're with someone who is glory. Think how much better that is when Christ offers that to you every single day. Every day. Christ says, you want to have lunch together? Nope, too busy, God. Where's the glory in this life anyways? Hey, God says, you want to spend time with me? Nope, I got other things to do. Where's the glory in this life anyways? And God says, literally, the glory is with me. You want it? Come spend time with me. Be with me, and you will benefit from the glory that surrounds me. But you run from him, and you say, where's the glory? <laughs> where's your God? Find your God, and you'll find the glory. Glory, we're told. Verse 14. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you feel like there is no glory this side of heaven, are you even abiding with Christ? Are you even connected to Christ? Are you dwelling in his presence? In his presence, there's the glory. Step up. Step up to the love God offers. Step up to the call to grace that God offers to all and represent him. Step up to the glory that God wants to have you feel now. Stand fast, point two. Verses 15 and 17, letter A. Do not abandon the truth that sets you free. Verse 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast. Hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or epistle. And I've already stated, these traditions are not talking about philosophies or politics. These traditions are not talking about what has always been done, well, at least for the last 80 years always been done. That is not the traditions here. The traditions in this word, in this text, in this verse, are referring to the truths that have always been attached to Christ, his gospel, his word. Do not abandon those truths. It was those truths that set you free. Why would you say the world doesn't have the answer to salvation? Christ does. You come to Christ and you say, Christ, 
I thought I could be self-righteous. I know I can't. I want your righteousness. Christ, I thought the world had the answers. They don't. I want your answers. Christ, I thought the world knew truth. They don't. You are truth. You claim to save all those who ask and offer your righteousness. I ask for that righteousness. I accept and believe and hope in your claim. And God says, you are saved. Great, see you in heaven. And you go back to the world. You go back to the world for their lies about what is morally right and wrong. Isn't that irony? The world doesn't believe in moral right and wrongs, and yet you're going to go to them to find out what it is? They don't believe? The world does not believe in absolute truth. Why would you ask them for truth when they do not believe absolute truth exists? The world has shown the end result of their choices. When you literally have thousands of years of human history proving and showing you the end result of the world's belief system, why would you think it's any different in 2023? Why do you think it will be any different for you in the next 10, 15 years? Why go to the way, the truth, and the life to only upon being saved go back to destruction, death, and lies? Why abandon the truth that sets you free? Do not, do not abandon the truth. Well, the truth offends me. The truth makes me uncomfortable. The truth requires of me a life I'm not willing to live. Lies destroy you. Lies may bring you comfort, but it also comes with a cost, a high cost. You will pay for that comfortable life of self-deception. Lies are not free. Christian, the truth sets you free. Lies are not free. In fact, it is the cost of these lies that the truth sets you free from only for you to go back and pay the cost all over again after being free by truth from that cost, why return to it? Stand fast in the truth and don't assume the world is any different today than it was over the last thousands of years. It's not. It's worse. Return to the truth. Letter B. Stand fast. Do not avoid the comfort that brings you peace. Verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. God loves us. He gives us consolation. Verse 17. He comforts our hearts. God is not a, 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 a being that dwells above us. God is a friend that dwells with us. God is not a, an overseer that controls us. God is a father that directs us. And if God calls us to be servants, God himself chose the life of a servant. Again, God will not ask anything of you that Jesus did not already experience. God says, will you be a servant? 
No, God, that's beneath me. God said, well, it wasn't beneath my son. He chose to be a servant. I'm only asking of you what God himself already did. Serve. God offers comfort. And you say, Pastor Russ, I don't feel it. If God provides it, why don't I have it? You don't have it because you have not embraced it. Life is full of so much pain, so much tribulation, turmoil. You feel like you're a ship tipping over, if not already sunk. You are hurting. You say, I know God is there. I know God loves me. Why do I feel the pain? It is like the child who, while at school, they went to go play, and their friend says, we don't want to play with you. And the child sits in the corner all recess, crying, hoping the friend might come and sit with them. No one does. The child goes to lunch, eyes red and puffy from the time of recess, and they sit next to one who was once their friend, and they said, nope, that seat's saved. You can't sit there. And the child finds in a table all by themselves, no one else is willing to sit by. The child then goes home, and the child goes straight to their room, locks the door. And that child's life continues, as I described, for the next two, five 10 years. And as that child becomes a teenager and a young adult, that child is disconnected from life, disconnected from human touch, from human care, and that child only knows pain because that child took their pain and hid from everyone. And then there's the same story of a child who on that first day of pain comes home and hugs their mom. Comes home and says, Dad, can we talk? The first child had parents, but that first child locked their parents out. The second child spoke with their parents. We all have a father. You say, Pastor Russ, if you knew my dad, you'd know I was better in the room, locked. I'm not talking about your dad. I'm talking about our dad, God. We've all got God, our Father. You're in pain. I'm in pain. God offers comfort. But when you lock yourself in your room, you won't feel it. God says, come to me, all those weak and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will carry your burden. I will walk with you. I will console you. I will comfort you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you in your darkest moments, the shadow of death. I will be with you. Stop locking me out. God is a gentleman. And he says, I stand at that door that you've locked and knock. Will you let me in? No, God, I'm okay. I don't need you. Man, I wish I could be comforted. Will you let me in? No, God, I'm good. Seriously, I'm all right. Thank you for salvation. It's all good. Man, I sure am sad. Will you let me in? God, leave me alone. I'm serious. Stop bothering me. 
I wonder why God doesn't knock anymore. I wonder why God doesn't care anymore. God never stopped caring. It is possible that he did stop knocking. But if he stopped knocking, it's only because you told him to. And if you want him to knock again, all you got to do is ask. He won't knock. He'll come through the door. He will embrace you. He will come for you. He may or may not eliminate the the problem, the source of your pain, but he will most assuredly comfort you through the pain. Stand fast. How can we do that in pain? Only in the comfort of Christ. And then let her see. Do not ignore the guidance that provides success. Verse 16. Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. God wants to establish you in a position where you will not be moved, where the weight of the world does not knock you down, where the rejection of the world will not knock you down, where the pain of the world will not keep you down. God wants to establish you, not that you sit fast, not that you lay fast. What does that word say? Stand fast. Because you cannot win this sitting down. You cannot find victory lying down. It is standing. Standing strong. Unmovable. In Christ. How can we do this? God shows you the way. You must follow the way. The way is not traditions of religion that have been passed down for decades. The way is truth of the gospel and his word that has been available to man for centuries. That is the way. Follow the way of Christ, who is the way, and you will stand in word and in work. Not only will your words be strong, your works will be strong. Let's pray.